my family goes through what I'd call phases of activities that we enjoy to do, and right now we're currently in what I like to call the gaming phase. And I don't mean video games or everybody just playing a game on their phone or on their tablet somewhere. I mean like real games, you remember those? Games like Monopoly and Candyland, and our favorite right now that we are really into is Uno. And I love just being able to play games with the family because of what I think is accomplished by doing that. You know, today it's so easy to have everybody in a different room on a different device or doing some different activity and not together. But when you come together and you play a game, everybody's around the table, everybody's unified, we all have one goal, to beat each other, and we are there unified as a family around a common purpose and a common aim, and there is unity that is brought into the midst of a family. You don't need to clap for that, but thank you. <laughs> well, the church is a family too, and the church is called to unity. The church is called to be united with one another. And really, we have been united with one another. This is a reality that is already true in the church if we think about it in the cosmic sense that Christ, through his work, if you are in Christ, has united us not only with him but with one another. That through the work of Christ on our behalf, we are one with him and one with one another, united. And that even though that's the reality, we are told over and over again in Scripture that we need to continue to pursue the unity of the body of Christ, the unity of believers, that this should be an aim and a goal. And we have to be told this because division crops up within the church. Disunity comes in to the church. And one of the reasons why that happens is because while we are united, we still maintain our distinctions. See, the church is not just... Uh, an organism that all of a sudden when you come together in one in Christ, all the distinctions that existed prior are abolished and are done away with. No, those distinctions remain. And the difference between maybe the world and how they view distinctions, where the world will go to war because there is a distinction of language or ethnicity. Or there will be divisions within culture because there is a, a, a distinction made between the oppressed and the oppressor. There's ideologies, political philosophies built around distinctions. Well, the difference in the church is that distinctions don't divide. We are able to operate with our diversity and yet still maintain unity. You might be thinking of a passage like Galatians chapter 3 where Paul says, yeah, but listen, there's no longer any Jew nor Greek right there. Isn't that the abolition of all distinction? Isn't that wipe out all distinction? Well, no, it doesn't. What Paul is saying very clearly here is that there is a union in Christ that comes over and supersedes those distinctions while they still remain. Think of Paul's own ministry. Paul is called to be an apostle to who? To the Gentiles. That's part of his calling. Part of his ministry is to be a minister to the distinct group. When he goes and he travels from city to city and town to town, he goes to the Jew first and then the Gentile. Distinction remains. And yet there is unity between those two groups in the body of Christ. He says there's no longer slave nor free. That doesn't mean that now there is no distinction for those in that context that are either enslaved or have their own personal freedom. No, what he's saying is that in the body of Christ, they're all unified together and with Christ, and yet we know that the distinction remains. There's a whole book of the Bible that addresses this, talking to a slave and how, she, how he should remain in that position and yet be united with Christ 
and strive and serve to follow Christ and live in union with one another. Same is true with male and female. There is not an abolition of distinction between male and female. We know very clearly in Ephesians chapter 5 and other texts that there is clearly a distinction between male and female in their function and their roles, and yet in Christ, there's no male and female because of what Christ has done in unifying us together. So we maintain our diversity and we pursue unity together. They still exist. And we know that these things, these distinctions, this diversity that we have within the church should not divide. And we as a church, we're good at this, I think. I could commend you as a pastor to say, you're, you're good at not dividing over distinctions like financial distinctions between the, the poor and the rich. You're not, you're, you don't have a problem with dividing over uh, uh, ethnic distinctions or distinctions in gender. We don't have these problems because we understand them well and we don't divide over these. So continue with that. That's good. But there is another distinction that I think we need to be aware of as a church that has the potential, like all distinctions do, to come in and divide and separate. There is a distinction that exists within the church that we all know about and, and see, but we don't think about it too often, that has the ability to isolate people, to divide into factions or in groups, to cause frustration and disunity and fighting and grumbling and complaining within the body of Christ that God does not want us to have. He wants us to be unified. Unified in love, unified in Christ. And so we need to be aware of this distinction and fight against this distinction and know our responsibility given this distinction. I said that my family's in the game phase and I like it because it's unifying. Well, that's not always true. Uh, our game time is not always unifying. And I, I think, you know, other than the competition, there is uh, one particular reason why we are not always unified. And that is because um, my youngest is not quite on the same maturity level as the rest of the family. You see, the rest of the family, when we sit down and we play Uno, we understand the rules. We remember whose turn it is. It's uh, a big one. Um, we, we know how to strategize. We know how to make it more fun, more engaging. And we know that. But, but the little one, n not so much. You see, she gets confused, she gets lost, she forgets whose turn it is, she plays the wrong card, she messes up, and sometimes that distinction in her level of maturity and not understanding how this works causes division in the family. Not only does she get annoyed and frustrated with us, she gets discouraged and disheartened and doesn't know what to do and feels isolated, but we get annoyed with her. We're frustrated that she doesn't get it, and all of a sudden, boom, a rift happens within our family because this difference in level of maturity. Well, of course, in the church, we know that there is a difference in maturity levels as well, and I'm not speaking of age distinction. I'm not talking about general maturity. I'm talking about spiritual maturity. Within the body of Christ, there is a clear distinction between those that are spiritually mature and those that are spiritually immature. We know that within the body of Christ, we have a range of people in their spiritual walk and their spiritual journey. That there are people who have been seasoned and tested and their faith has proven strong. They've endured trials. They've gone through suffering. They've been refined and they've been proven that their faith is strong and secure. They walk with the Lord for a long time. They know scripture well. They can speak into people's lives. They are mature. But then we also have people who are immature. Those that would be considered weak. Those that are unstable in their faith. When a trial comes, they're shaky. They're not sure if they're going to endure and bear up under that trial or collapse and fall. They don't know if a temptation comes, if they're going to be able to fight that temptation or if they're going to fall to it. They're weak. They're immature. We see this distinction happen. Think of the new believer can be immature. In the church, we have every range between. There is a big 
variation and diversity within the body of Christ between those that are spiritually mature and those that are spiritually immature. The way the Bible talks about it is that there is those that are spiritually strong and spiritually weak. There's a distinction. This is not to be derogatory in any sort of way if you feel like you're in one category or the other. It's not to lift you up or make you boastful or make you feel bad about yourself. This is just the reality of the life of Christ. We're all at a different place, and that's okay. But we need to be careful that that distinction between our levels of maturity doesn't filter into our church and separate us and divide us and cause disunity. That's exactly what our passage is going to talk about today in Romans chapter 15. So you can turn there with me to Romans chapter 15 as this text is going to highlight this. But as you do, since we're jumping into this text cold without any context, let me do a little bit of context. And I'm sure you know that there are pastors who uh, take about a decade to preach the book of Romans. I'm going to give you a summary of the book of Romans in like a minute. So just, it's going to be really just, almost the same. Um, the book of Romans is about God's plan of salvation. It is about his ultimate plan of salvation of what he is doing in the world. And he is highlighting, Paul is highlighting for us in the book of Romans, these theological realities that we need to deal with. The first one that we deal with right away is the reality of sin that separates us from God. And our need for God to step in and reveal that sin to us and provide a solution. So we know that he reveals our sin through the law. We know that he provides a solution through Christ. And then how do we now participate in that salvation? Will we place our faith and our trust into Christ and that brings salvation? As the book continues on, as this plan of salvation is unfolding in the book of Romans, you see that it's not just a plan of salvation for one people group, God's chosen people, the Israelites, but know that in God's plan of salvation, he has opened it up for the inclusion of the Gentiles into the church. Not to replace Israel, not to supersede Israel, but as two distinct groups of people that God has called to be saved. The whole world now has the option to be saved in God's plan of salvation. And so we know that the Gentiles are grafted into Israel, and now salvation is offered to all. After he goes through this long discussion of the theological reality of salvation, there are some practical implications of this reality that we need to think through. And right away as we transition from chapter 11 in the book of Romans to chapter 12 in the book of Romans, we start to get practical. And we start to think about how we are to respond to one another knowing what God has done in showing his love to us through Christ. And first and foremost, that is that we are to love one another. He starts off in, first, or in Romans chapter 12 by talking about another distinction within the body, that each person within the body has a different gift, a different thing that they're to use, not for selfish game, but in love for the body and the building up of the body, that the church is to use their gifts for the upbuilding and the mutual edification and growth of the entirety of the body. And then he starts talking about love. He says love is really what we're aiming for here because like the love of God who supplied Christ to deal with the problem of sin, now we need to supply love within the context of the body. And so he says in Romans chapter 13 that love fulfills the law. It fulfills it. That if we participate in love for one another, we are fulfilling the law, and that's a good thing. But he wants us to get a little bit more specific, and so he searches for an example that he can use in this context of this church. Now, this church in Rome is made up of both Jew and Gentile, a distinct group of people, a distinct group of people brought together as one, and there is divisions that are arising in this context. And he says the reason why the divisions are arising is because there are people in the midst that are weak, spiritually weak. There is a group of people, probably the Jews in this context, who are struggling over opinions. 
They feel like they can't eat certain things or that they should worship on certain days or esteem certain days more highly. And the Gentiles in the group say, yeah, we don't need to do any of that. And so there is quarreling and fighting over opinions, things that are non-essential doctrine in the church. And Paul doesn't use this to berate anybody or to just go into a long dialogue. He, he corrects the issue, but he says the thrust of this is that the church realizes their role and responsibility in the midst of this division is to seek unity and care for one another through love. And so he leads us all the way up through this entire book thinking about God's love now to how we are to show love to one another. And we culminate here in the book of Romans in chapter 15 with a really a summary example of our responsibility that we have to one another given the fact that there are weak and strong members of the body of Christ to see all of us unified and built up together. So take a look with me at Romans chapter 15. I'm going to start in verse 1. We look at this text together, it says this. It says, we who are strong, Paul associating himself with a group of strong Christians in this sense, we have an obligation, a responsibility. We have a calling, we have a purpose. This is not something that we can neglect. No, this is an obligation. Those who are spiritually mature have an obligation to do what? To bear with the failings of the weak. To bear, to carry, to hold the load, to take the burden onto themselves. What? The failings of the weak. There's weak in the church, the immature, and they're to bear that. And in contrast to that, we also have an obligation not only to do that, but we have an obligation not to please ourselves. We have the obligation, the call, the responsibility to not seek our own in the church, to not please ourselves. As it says in verse 2, let each one of us not please ourselves, but please our neighbor. And we're not doing that for our good, our value, our building up, our encouragement. No, for their good, for the good of our neighbor, for, to build him up. It says, of course, our prime example is Christ. For Christ, of course, loved us. Christ, of course, did not please himself, seek his own. As it was written, a quote from Psalm 69 here, the reproaches of those who have reproached you have fallen on me. Jesus himself took the reproach of those who came against God and he took that burden upon himself, falling on him. We get this interesting aside here in verse 4. He says, for whatever is written in the former days, referring back, of course, to the Old Testament in Paul's time, and we can look to the entirety of the Bible, what was written in former days was written for what? For our instruction, to teach us, to help us to remember what is right, how we should live, what we should do, for our instruction, that through the instruction of the Scripture, that through endurance and the encouragement of the Scripture, we might have hope. It says in verse 5, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in harmony, oneness, peace with one another. Not unity, not division. In the same way that you're in accord with Jesus Christ, in the same way that you're one with Christ and he has made you one with him, we're to live with one another that way. That together, now both groups here are included, that together you may with one voice in unity, one common purpose, one aim, one intention, glorify God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, now here's a second imperative of, of a verse. What are we to do? We're to welcome, accept one another. As Christ has welcomed and accepted us into him, we are to do that with one another for the glory of God. 
I don't think it comes as any surprise if I were to say to you that we live in one of the most self-serving cultures really probably ever. I was on my way to work, I think it was two weeks ago, and I was stopped at a stoplight at the corner next to a gym when I saw this girl walk up, lady, woman, sorry, uh, walk up to the corner next to the gym with a selfie tripod in her hand. She then proceeded to set it down. All the time, she's grimacing. I mean, she is not happy. She is, puts the selfie tripod down. It's got a light on it. It's got a mount for her phone. She puts the phone in there. She gets it all set up. She fixes her hair. It was up. She's going to put it down, make sure she looks good. She's still grimacing. She's going to set it all up. She hits the timer, and then as soon as it counts down, she like smiles and jumps and then goes back to grimacing, picks it up, and walks away. And I'm just sitting at the stop like, like what did I just see? What just happened? People in the world and the system of the world it could be summarized by saying, people want to please themselves. Do we not live in that culture? Where people's main goal in life is to see themselves elevated, to receive praise and accolades and promotions for themselves, to get more in terms of financial security for themselves, to get bigger and better for themselves. They want to eat what they want, they want to watch what they want, they want to do what they want. The system of the world could be described as a love of self, where the self becomes their god and their idol and their means of worship. That is the way the world exists. I saw this the other day as I was scrolling through social media, which I think is a great summary of this. It is a little description of some things you might want to accomplish and how to accomplish them. The first one says, you want to become smarter? What should you do? Read. And I was like, yeah, that makes sense. The next one was, you want to have peace in your life? What should you do? Meditate. I'm like, yeah, it depends on what, I guess. Meditating on God, meditating on scripture, sure, but I don't think that's what they mean. And then the next one said, you want to help others? Love yourself. What? That doesn't make any sense at all. We have enough in our flesh that desires the love of self. Right? As Paul says, no one hates his own flesh but he nourishes it and cherishes it. That's ingrained in us. We take care of ourselves. What we need to focus on and what Christians, of course, need to do is not be concerned about the love of self, self-aggrandizement, self-praise, but caring for others. That is what Christians are to do. We're to help others, to serve others, to not please ourselves, as the text says. We are to live selfless, self-sacrificial lives of love in outreach to others. This is talked about over and over and over again in the scripture. And in particular, we're not just to reach out in love to those that are like us or those that are strong, but to those that are weak, which really goes against the whole culture of the world, even in the business world. The weak, what are they? They're a liability to you. They can mess you up. You don't associate with the weak. They're going to take you down. They're going to cause you to stoop to the lever and bring everybody down so we don't do it. Not biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity says the strong are going to go down to the level of the weak. We're going to humble ourselves, we're going to submit ourselves, and we're going to go down to the level of the weak. That's exactly what it says in our passage. Look at verse chapter, or chapter 1 again. Verse number 1 again. It says, we who are strong, those that are mature, we have the responsibility, the obligation, to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Cannot please ourselves in this. Instead, we are to please our neighbor for the neighbor's benefit. The world's system of reaching out to other peoples, even in love, is still to elevate themselves. That's not us. 
We don't care about our elevation. We don't care about our exaltation or our reputation in that sense. We are going to go to who needs it. And in this context, it's the spiritually weak. Society says that if you go down to this level, you're going to be mocked, you're going to be ridiculed, you're going to be called as foolish, but no, that's not the case for us as Christians. We know that we should do this. So I want you to write this down this way for our first point. Not be like the world, but be like Christ in that we selflessly help the spiritually weak. We need to selflessly help the weak. This is an important thing for us to do. You might be asking, and it's important to ask, who are the weak? We need to talk about this for a second so we know who we're identifying because I don't want everybody in this room to think that they're strong and nor do I want everybody in this room to think that you're weak. I'm not trying to pit everybody against each other. It's the opposite of this. Who are the weak? Well, I'd say we have two categories of weak that we can identify. We could say that there are the generally weak. Maybe think of the new believer, the one that doesn't know a ton about scripture, that doesn't have theology form, that hasn't been tested, that hasn't been tried, that hasn't endured a ton of hardship. They might be strong in some areas, but generally, as a new believer, they are immature and spiritually weak. That's a general category of immaturity. Or you can associate to that as not a new believer, but someone who has not been underneath the teaching of a good church, someone who's not dedicated themselves to the study of Scripture, someone who has not done well underneath trials, and so they, even though they've been a Christian for a period of time, are still generally weak, immature. But then there's another category, which is those that we would probably say are generally strong, generally mature, that because of circumstance or weariness are weak. Every single person in this room is at times spiritually weak, whether it's because you are enduring a long period of suffering, a trial that persists and wears you down, even just a small season in your life, a week of difficulty at work or in your home or in your family can wear you down to where you feel weak and need to be strengthened. There's, of course, a large variety within our church, of those that are both weak and strong. And you might be a seasoned Christian who've been walking with the Lord for a long time, and yet there are times where you are weak and you know it. We need to, all of us, identify the weak in our midst, seek them out, and help them selflessly, the spiritually weak. You might be thinking to yourself, that's probably not too hard, right? I'm motivated. I want to do that. I think I can do that. Well, let me just say this. Don't underestimate your propensity in your flesh to be selfish. I, um, I worked with this guy who was obsessed with Frisbee, ultimate Frisbee. He was like an ultimate Frisbee nut. He was in leagues. He was like in an amateur league. I didn't know that existed. He was like trying out for the pros. Also didn't know that existed. It's awesome. He was really, really good at ultimate Frisbee. And he was helping me out with our youth group at the time, and um, he would come and he'd bring his, his Frisbee with him, and he'd like kind of, you know, like I'm good at Frisbee, he'd get everybody to try to get engaged with Frisbee. He'd stand at the edge of the parking lot, and, and he'd just say, tell me what to hit, and it'd be like 50 yards away, I'd say, hit that light pole. And he would just flick it like this, and he'd hit the light pole. I was like, wow, it's really amazing. So this guy's coming in, and he's thinking, man, everybody's going to love my ability with this Frisbee, right? We're going to have a great time. We're going to play with this. And then all the junior hires arrive, right? And uh, we start playing Frisbee, and no one can catch what he's throwing. No one throws to him because they don't know how to throw. The Frisbee before long is in the tree. Uh, it's getting stuck on the roof. And the guy that comes in thinking, like, man, this is going to be such a blessing and a benefit to all because, look, I'm so good at Frisbee, gets frustrated with those who aren't good at Frisbee. 
in our pursuits to help the spiritually weak, to go after them selflessly, we need to identify that there are a lot of things that we might justify even in our own flesh for why we shouldn't or why we don't. Think about this. You ever thought this? You know, it's not a valuable use of my time to pursue the spiritually weak because, you know, what they're dealing with, their problems, it's like a, it's someone crying over spilled milk. It's so insignificant in pa- compared to my problems. It's so small. It's so trivial. They should be able to get over it on their own, right? And if I go and I help them out, it's, it's such a small thing, but we're going to be sitting for a long time talking about it. This should be elementary, and yet they don't get it. And I'm going to have to labor with them and give my time. To which I would say, bear as your obligation with the weak. I mean, giving up your time, taking on the burden upon yourself. Or maybe you're saying, yeah, but the pastor, like, I know that God, he doesn't want me to be exhausted and drained all the time. He wants me to be uplifted and encouraged and edified. And when I go and I sit with those in my small group or in our church or even those in my family or people that are struggling with something because they're spiritually weak, I leave and I'm drained. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. God doesn't want that for me. Yeah. He, he wants you to give of yourself, to bear their difficulty, their struggles. He wants you to step into that. Sure, he wants you to be encouraged, but you might be drained. You say, okay, but Pastor Doug, listen. Sometimes the spiritually weak do dumb things, right? Like, just, like, just do dumb things. They don't heed my advice, and then they, they fall, and, and it's like, well, come on. I told you. Or they're ignorant. They don't understand what's going on. They, just, they step into something because they don't get it. Why, I, why would I help that? They just, they just do things that are wrong. So many reasons for that. But what we're trying to do in there is we're trying to say, well, it's their fault and remove responsibility from us. But what does the text say? It says we're to bear with the failings of the weak. Even when they stumble and fall and fail, we're to bear that with them, to step into it with them, not to isolate them or exclude them or shame them, but to bear with them. As it says in Galatians 6, brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual, so if anybody is entrenched in sin even, within the context of the church, us who are spiritual, the mature What are we to do? We're to restore that person who has fallen, entrenched in sin, in a spirit of gentleness. How do we do that? Well, we got to first be careful. Don't think you're so good because you're spiritually mature that you would be tempted. But what you're to do? Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Even if a brother or sister in Christ stumbles in their weakness and falls to the temptation of sin. We are not to exclude them or shun them or shame them. Yes, we need to confront them and we want them to repent, but we need to restore them in a spirit of gentleness by stepping into it and bearing with them this burden. Another thing that I see that is alarming to me is that there's a a real large sense of social scorn that takes place when the mature and the strong step into the reality of the weak. People in the community, people in your workplace, maybe even your husband or your wife will say something like, that's beneath you, that's below you. Why do you need to do that? They can go to someone else. You have more important things to do. I want you to turn with me to Psalm 69. 
Turn to Psalm 69. This is the passage that is quoted in verse 3 of our text. And Paul, of course, references this as Christ, but the original context of this is in the life of David. Psalm 69, starting in verse 9. David, who, of course, is the king of Israel, he is at the top. He is the pinnacle. He is the anointed one. He is as high as high can go, has this. He says, for zeal for your house, God, has consumed me. What does he mean by that? He means that you all, even though I'm in my high position, I am looking around at the people and I am seeing them entrenched in sin. I'm seeing them not live holy lives, not obey your law, and that has consumed me, the king. It says, the reproaches of those who have reproached you have fallen on me. There's our quote. He's saying the, the, the insults, the slanderous sneers that our people are hurling at God because of their sinful disobedience are now being placed onto me. He's bearing the reproaches of others. It says in verse 10, he weeps. And when I wept and I humbled my soul with fasting, when he now takes upon himself this burden, says it became his reproach. He stepped into it on their behalf to come alongside and support them. It says, then he made a public display of his repentance. I made sackcloth my clothing. Probably put ashes on his head. He marched around the king of Israel, the highest one, and it says he became a byword to them. As people were passing by, it's like, look at the king. What is he doing? He shouldn't step into the people's burdens. He shouldn't share with them in their suffering as they struggle through these things. No, he's the king. He says, I'm the talk of those who sit in the gate. People who are out and about in the world, in the city, they're sitting there and they're saying, come on, foolish, why is the king putting himself down, going down to their level? Even the drunkards are making songs about him, how foolish he is. You know, we're going to have a lot of people, maybe even in our own community here, that will tell us it's not worth our time. It's not worth our energy. It's going to wear you down. Don't do it. Don't humble yourself. You have much more important things to do. To which we need to say, well, that's not the example that we have with David. And of course, that's not the example we have with Christ, which is who Paul attributes this reality to. Of course, Christ is our ultimate example of taking burdens on himself. You see, Christ, he did not come to protect his time. No, he gave his time. He stepped out of the timeless nature of the divine Son of God and stepped into our time to give of himself for us. He didn't protect his time. He gave his time for others. He didn't limit his frustration by making sure, you know, all the people that are in disagreement with him were far away and the burdens of the disciples who just still couldn't get it time and time again. No, 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 he kept Stepping in. He didn't try to de decrease difficulty. He didn't try to lighten his load. If anything, of course, we know that Christ took on your load, the burden and the weight of your sin and the reproach of your sin that should be on your account, bearing the wrath of God on himself. He stepped into the world to bear our burden. He didn't care about the accolades of the religious elite. He didn't want the applause and the claps from the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. No, instead he, he was insulted 
and sneered and reviled as he bore our penalty on the cross. There's going to be those out and around that say, don't do it, it's not worth it, you shouldn't do it, or your own selfishness is going to kick in and say, no, 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 you have better things to do, don't waste your time. We need to remember Christ as we selflessly help the spiritually weak in our midst, knowing that Christ went all the way to the extent of humbling self, coming down from humbling humbling himself, taking on human flesh, and humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross for our sake. Philippians 2, I think, is a, a, a good summary of how we should respond to the reality of what Christ did in this particular context. It says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any encouragement that you as a believer had in thinking about what Christ did in bearing your penalty and taking on your load that you deserved onto himself, if there's any encouragement in that, if there's any comfort in understanding God's love for us and providing Christ for us, if there's any participation that you enjoy with the Spirit in that the Spirit has placed you into Christ and now has come into your life, if you enjoy any of the participation of that because of Christ, if there's any affection or sympathy, then what should you do? Complete Paul's joy in this context, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Think the same way about how you respond to others. Be unified in this together as a church and that you're going to step into the difficulty of the weak. Have the same love, the same love that Christ had for us, that God had for us in providing Christ for us. Being in full accord and in one mind together, unified. And do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, like Christ did, Count others as more significant than yourself. Don't please yourself. Seek the enrichment of others. Seek the benefit, the spiritual growth of others. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, we're going to do that naturally, but also to the interest of others. As we think about what Christ did for us, we need to recognize that our responsibility, our call, our burden that we bear is to selfishly help the weak. Well, how do we help the weak? What do we do? How do we come alongside them? How do we support them? Well, there's lots of things you can do. You give your time. You go be physically present with people when they need you. You give resources if they need them. You give your time and your energy and yourself to them. Yes, there's lots of things you can do, but there is one thing that the Bible prescribes to us that is the thing that is going to help the weak. You, you, you probably don't know this about me, but I was an avid, avid skateboarder when I was a teenager, which is a horrible sport for someone my height, okay? Because... It's a really long way down. I mean, it's, it's just really, really far. And because of that problem, I had sprained my wrist probably 10 times. Because every time I would slip out on that skateboard, I would fall down and all the weight of my tall frame would land on my wrist. So there was a period of my life where my wrist was so weak. I mean, it was just weak. And there was things that I tried to do to help my wrist. I, Got those creams, you know, that you would put on to help with the pain. I tried wrapping it myself, giving it some, some support. I even go to the doctor, make sure it's not broken, see what he said. The only thing that really helped my wrist wasn't those things. wasn't giving it time or trying to strengthen it by exercises because the problem was is I was obsessed with skateboarding and I had to get out there and keep skateboarding. I had to. So I'd go out there with a weak wrist and I needed the right support. It wasn't until I got that really firm wrist guard with the plate on the inside and the strong Velcro straps, I could get out there even if my wrist was totally messed up and keep skateboarding. We need to employ 
for the help of those that are weak, the right support in their lives. What is the right support that God has equipped and designed for their encouragement and for their strengthening? Our passage tells us clearly it is Scripture. It is the Word of God. Look at the passage, verse 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instructions that through the endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. God has designed the Word of God specifically to come alongside and help those who are struggling with spiritual weakness. If you've ever had the moment when you're struggling, sitting with someone who is really down in their faith, they're wanting to throw the towel in, they're weak, they're feeling burdened, they don't know if they can go on, they don't know if they can do it, they're struggling to trust God, and you wonder, what should I say? Scripture. Someone is struggling with a conscience issue, what should you do? Take them to Scripture. Take them to Romans chapter 14. Someone is being tempted to sin, What should you do? Take them to Scripture. This is the model that even Jesus does. As he's tempted and his body is weak and he is facing the temptation of the enemy himself, he goes to Scripture as his response. Someone has fallen into sin. They have wandered away from the truth, as it says in James. We're to restore them by providing Scripture as the means of their encouragement and strengthening. Tell them the truth that in Christ there is forgiveness of sins. It's wiped away and it's clean. I want you to say it this way. Point number two, strengthen the weak with Scripture. Strengthen the weak with Scripture. Turn with me real briefly. We'll we'll, we'll fly through this to Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8. Old Testament book of the Bible, you can get there. Nehemiah chapter 8. You just got to remember the context of what's going on in the life of these people. If there is a people that is weak, I think it's these people in Nehemiah chapter 8. They've been in exile for 70 years. They've been underneath Babylonian kings and emperors and rulers. They've been underneath Persian kings. They have been without a land. They have been without a temple. They have been without a lot, and they have struggled. Finally, they get the call to go back and rebuild the temple, and the people are excited. They want to go into the land, but here's the problem is that there's all these enemies surrounding them. So they want to go back, but it's going to be hard. They're already weak. They're already beat down. They've been in exile. Now they go back, so what do they want to do? They want to build a wall to fortify around the city so that they can preserve and protect themselves. And so they labor over building this wall to give them some sense of security and strengthening in the midst. And these people are depleted. They've been out without temple worship. They've been without a home. They've been without teaching. And here they are in Nehemiah chapter 8. And it says this. It says all the people... All these weak and weary and restless people who have been laboring to build the wall. Everybody here who had a job to do, what do they do? They gather together before the water gate. And they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses. So Ezra, the priest, brought the book of the law before the assembly, and both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read it facing the square before the water gate from early morning till midday. These tired and weary and worn out people we're in this square for hours and hours and hours. You're probably already getting tired of my sermon and want to go home and get lunch. They just stood there because they got the word. It says, what did they do in response to that? So all the people, their ears were attentive to this book. 
In verse 5, it says, So Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, what did the weary and distraught people who were there for hours listening do? They stood. They were strengthened. They were emboldened. They responded. Ezra blessed the Lord and the great God, and the people answered. They responded, Amen, Amen. They began lifting up their hands, responding to the word of God. And they bowed their heads. It's an act of worship and contrition. And worship the Lord with the faces to the ground. And then all of these people, the Levites and those who are in charge, and Ezra and Nehemiah and all these, they began to help the people understand the word, the law. And while the people remained in their places, they read from the book, the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense. They explained it. They exposited it. They helped people understand the meaning of the scripture so the people could understand the reading. It says in verse 9, Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and the scribe and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, this day is not a day to mourn and weep, it's holy to the Lord. Because all the people were weeping because they were responding to their own sinfulness. But what did they tell them? Told them to rejoice. It says in verse 12, to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Listen, when we are weak and we are weary, just like those in the context of Nehemiah, the tired masses were gathered, what we need for our strengthening is Scripture. We need to employ Scripture. When they're tired and weak, they stood because of Scripture. They responded because of Scripture. They rejoiced because of Scripture. We need to be better at employing Scripture in people's lives. We need to help people in our midst understand Scripture. Not just to hear it, but to understand it, to comprehend it which means there are things that we as a church need to be better at doing, not just for our own sake or our edification, but for the edification of others. When we read the Bible, which we should be doing daily in our DBR, we're not just reading that for ourselves, we're reading that to be able to employ it in the lives of other people. We need to go beyond reading, we need to meditate on Scripture. We need to commit Scripture to memory. We need to go beyond that and study Scripture whether it's like listening to sermons or using good, solid theological books or entering into lectures and classes or going through a program like we've designed here, like the Partners Program, that takes Scripture and applies it so that someone can mature through Scripture, to be strengthened out of their maturity into more maturity because of Scripture. If you're here and you've not done Partners, you should do Partners. If you've done Partners and it's been a while since you've taken someone through, Step into the lives of the weak and strengthen them with Scripture. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, though, I don't know enough. I don't know enough Scripture. If that's the case, I'll just say this. You know something. You know something. You're here. You know Romans 15. You know John 3.16. Employ what you know. Don't get worn down because you're not as good as everybody else in your use of Scripture. Should you grow in it? Yes. Should you strive to know more? Should you be skilled in the use of the words of righteousness, as it says in Hebrews 5? Yeah, you should. But if you're not there, use what you have. Don't give yourself an excuse to not speak Scripture into people's lives when they need to hear it for their own strengthening and edification. You know, I hear a lot of people say, I have a hard time studying I have a hard time doing the DBR because when I read it, I just don't get enough out of it. I'm not learning. I'm not growing. Well, let me just say this. Change your perspective. Should you grow when you read? Yes. Should you be encouraged when you read and edified? Yes. But you know what you should also be doing is you should be thinking about others who need it. Even in your own home, in your small group, in your community, there are people that need to hear the word of God. 
And if you're not getting anything out of it, think of how you might be employed to use it for someone else, to strengthen someone else. I want you to write this verse down. Just write it down. Psalm 119, verse 36. Don't forget the 36. It's the longest chapter in the Bible. You'll never find it. Psalm 119, 36. This is something that if you struggle as you're getting into the word of God and into study, that you can pray to reset your heart and set your focus rightly. Simply this. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Even as you read, yes, of course, we don't want to be pursuing riches and promotion and all these things. We want to care more about the word of God. And even in our care of the word of God, we want to be strengthened, but we want to strengthen others. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not for selfish gain. As you sit down to read the Bible this week, pray that prayer and ask God to incline your heart to his word to use it for the employment of strengthening the weak with scripture. Scripture is clearly there for our instruction. It's there for our edification. It's a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. It comes alongside and it supports us. It puts us in the right direction. As we go to a particular story in the Bible, whether the Old Testament or the New Testament, a historical reality of what happens and we see these things, it strengthens us, it emboldens us. As we go to specific scripture in the epistles that, that correct us and instruct us, that strengthens us, but ultimately know that God is the one behind all of this doing the strengthening. He is the one that is supplying through Scripture what we all need to be growing and mature and unified. Look at how it is phrased in verse 5. Says, of course, the Scripture gives us encouragement and endurance, but may God, may the God of endurance and encouragement, the one who really is supplying it, may He grant to you, the body of Christ, to live in harmony with one another, to be unified just like you are with Christ, be unified with one another. That together, now everyone here, that together you may be unified in purpose, glorifying God, which is our goal of being unified. And then he says, therefore, imperative, welcome, accept each other. Don't let the distinction between weak and strong put you apart. Instead, welcome one another. If you're strong, welcome the weak. If you're weak, welcome the strong into your life. Welcome one another. We need to pray and ask God that he would intervene when we struggle with this, but we need to do more than that. We don't just want to pray when things get hard and say, okay, I tried. I tried to step into someone's life. They didn't really accept it. I tried to share scripture. They didn't really accept it. So now I'm going to pray and then I'm out. I'm done. I did my duty and I'm done. No, no. You continue to welcome one another. Choose say it this way for point number three. We need to prayerfully strive for unity. Not just to pray, but to prayerfully strive for unity. This requires action on your part as a church. To pursue one another. To go after the spiritually immature in our midst to strengthen them. To pursue the weak Unity cannot happen passively. We're not just going to be one united body because we all just sit here on a Sunday morning. We have to actively be invested in striving for unity within our church. It's the idea of welcoming. It implies effort. Effort has to be applied. The strong must pursue the weak, and the weak must accept the work of the strong in their lives. We need to have a steadfast commitment to this reality so that as we have here, the whole body may grow up together, which is the goal. So it says in Ephesians chapter 4, what's the goal? 
The goal is that the entire body, every part of the body, we're to build it up until we all attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to what? To mature manhood, to maturity, to the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ. That is our desire. It is our goal to see every person in our midst look like Christ, to be mature. And that requires us to go after them, to strive after them, to ask God to intercede as we go after them, as we seek them out. You know, this church has designed, very specifically, groups in which this whole reality takes place. If you are not in an HFG, a home fellowship group, or in a sub-congregational ministry that has a small group component, you are missing out on this opportunity. What those groups are designed to do is to take a group of people who are all at different levels of spiritual maturity and to put them into a group together where they are able to practice the love of Christ and the love for one another by being unified as they seek to mature together. That is the purpose of doing this. And I hear a lot of people who sometimes don't enjoy going to these groups. A lot do, most of you do, but sometimes they don't because they kind of think about themselves in a way they shouldn't. They say, you know what, I, I'm going to decide not to go to group this week because I've had a really hard week and I'm just kind of feeling down. That's the point of the group. If you're having a hard week and you're like, I don't want everybody to see all of my stuff, it's just been hard, it's been bad, so I'm going to skip, don't skip. That's the point. If you are weak and you are weary, you need to be strengthened by those that are stronger in your group. Or if you're in the group and you're saying, I'm, I'm the mature one, I'm always leading discussion, I might be the leader of the group, and you know, it's just really tiring to always have to support and encourage everybody else in the group. I am tired. That's the point too. We are to support and encourage one another. The strong in the midst of the weak, and everybody has a part to play as everybody is at a different level of spiritual maturity to see all of us rise together, to be edified, to rise in that maturity level, and to be united as we do it. So if you are not in an HFG or a subcongregational ministry, you're missing out on your potential growth and fulfilling this command of Scripture to bear the burdens of the weak and step into their lives. We need to seek God for this. We need to pray, but we need to strive. Strive hard for unity to see the maturity of the church grow. You know, I said that I like games because they produce unity. But my daughter, you know, she can kind of mess that up sometimes, which is okay, because she's not quite on our level. The reality is that sometimes we do get frustrated. She gets frustrated, we get frustrated, we get annoyed. But, but in, in truth, it, it doesn't last long. It doesn't last long because the goal for me and my wife is not to absolutely demolish our kids in Uno, which happens, and when it does, it's awesome. That's not the goal. The goal is to come together as a family, to be unified, and to mature together. And so when my kid struggles understanding the rules, we step into that and explain the rules, even if it slows down the game, even if it makes it a little less fun. Or if she doesn't understand something or gets distracted or forgets whose turn it is, we, well, we step into that even though it might be a little annoying, a little frustrating, might slow us down, might make it not as fun. Or if she needs help with the strategy, we might even show our cards and ruin our chance of winning just to help her to understand the game. Because we understand that our goal is, 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 is the unity and the growth in that context. And the true is the same for the church. Our goal is clear. 
We're to love one another and be unified and to love each other the way that we ought to by stepping into each other's lives, to bear the burdens of the weak, to strengthen them with scripture and to prayerfully serve. And you know what the result is in my family? The result is, is when we step in and we do that, we all get better at Uno together and we all have a great time. And we can be joyful as we spend our and are expended for the sake of other people's to see their growth and their edification. We can all enjoy this together, to be glad in it, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, to be glad as we spend ourselves for other people. We need to care deeply about the unity of the church. We need to care deeply about everyone's growth and maturity, and we need to step into our responsibility, wherever that may be, to support the weak, support them with scripture, support them in prayer, and continue to strive for unity within this church. So let's strive to that end this week. Let's pray. God, help us to do this thing that we know is so important to you that not only have you made us one in Christ, made us one with one another, but you have called us so clearly to be one together with one another. God, help us to not make excuses for stepping into the lives of the weak. Help us to not see ourselves as more highly than we should. Help us to preference one another. Not to overlook sin, things like this, God, but to step in where needed, to come alongside with Scripture and to build one another up, to restore people, to have their, their faith be strengthened and bolstered so that the whole body together grows in such a way that is pleasing to you. God, you desire this church to be mature. You desire every single person here to reach the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ. And we know ultimately, God, we will not come to that place until our sin problem is taken away and we are united with you ultimately in eternity. But God, in the midst of that, we ask that we would do our part to strive for unity, to pursue the maturity of others, and that you would do your part, God. We ask that you would do your part in helping us maintain the immunity of this body. Let there be no division in our church, in our midst, because of the distinction of those that are spiritually mature and immature. God, help us all to rise together as we support and love one another because you have gone to the degree of supporting and loving us through what you've done through Christ and bearing our sin, bearing our burden for our sake. Help us to be motivated by that this week as we pursue to be obedient to you. In Jesus' name, amen.